0: The gospel, the gospel that makes a way. It's the gospel that makes a way. Hey, well, our series is called How to Treat Mean People. Have you ever met a mean person? Yeah. Right? How do you have a brother or sister? Okay. How many of you have ever had your brother or sister be mean to you? All right. And how many, let's see if as many hands go up. How many of you have ever been mean to your brother or sister? Okay, I think almost as many hands. Erlene put her hand up twice on that one. All right. So we've got some people who have experienced meanness, and we have some people uh, who have experienced being mean. Now, mean people have been around since the very first family on earth, and we really shouldn't be surprised if we run into them now and again. Thankfully, Jesus has given us some very clear instructions on how to treat mean people. And in this series, uh, we're gonna be looking at his most famous sermon and the four specific callings that he's given us as we deal with difficult people uh, here on the earth. And so let's head for Matthew chapter 5 this morning for our reading. And if you're turning there in your Bible uh, or on your app, Matthew chapter 5, I want to thank all those who helped in so many different ways uh, with the If Gathering ladies event on Friday and Saturday night of this past week. And I know that God is going to continue uh, to use the connections that have been made to support and strengthen many different ladies in their faith. And so thanks to everybody who helped with that in so many ways. Uh, As Scott mentioned, next week is the dreaded time change Sunday, uh, the jump ahead day. And I realize that your phone really kind of does all the work for you now on this. uh, But just passing along the same public service announcement that I've been sharing for many years, uh, if you mentally put your clock ahead on Saturday morning that it won't affect your Sunday morning, okay? Uh, but if you wait till bedtime on Saturday night, it will most certainly affect your Sunday morning. So there you have it, PSA completed. Uh, also, a reminder that our next steps for March are coming up on March 20th, and if you need Class 201 still to finish out your next steps at uh, Discovering Christian Maturity That's the class that we're offering on March 20th. Also, if you've never taken class 101, Discovering Church Membership, it's kind of the starting point of next steps. Uh, You can sign up for that at servechurch.org or at the lobby kiosk. Uh, We'll let you know the next time we're offering class 101. Friend Day is four weeks away from today. Okay, so the first Sunday in April is Friend Day. And I want you to be praying about who God wants you to invite. I was reading a a Christian magazine that said that fewer than 5% of people will try out a church based upon flyers and advertising, et cetera. But 89% of people said that they would go to church if a friend invited them. 89%, staggering number. And uh, so let's all invite a friend for friend day, and the gospel will be clearly and compassionately given on that Sunday, uh, just as it is every week. Okay, are you in Matthew 5? Let's start reading there in verse 43. Here we go. Ye have heard that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, that sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. And so we'll get into that passage throughout the series. But you saw probably there in verse 44, the four action steps that we're going to be covering. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. And uh, we're going to spend our series breaking down these four Christian responses. And uh, these four Christian responses are so important, uh, not only to our lives and our relationships, but to reaching people with the gospel. And uh, so let's get into this this morning, how to treat mean people. And this morning, the first message, we're going to start with love them love them. yeah. the notes are in your bulletin. Uh, they're also on the version app. And there are kids' bulletins. So make sure, kids, that you get those every Sunday. Now, here's the thing. If you only like nice people and you only love nice people, your options on following the commands of Jesus will be extremely limited. The world is full of not nice people. Right? It is, this is a grouping, which we mentioned previously, sometimes includes all of us. Right? How many of you are a little more not nice before you get your morning coffee? Okay. Has anybody gone too long without your coffee and you feel like you may have even slipped into mean territory before? Right? You kind of didn't have your caffeine and you're just a little grumpy. Right. Now, I see some of you looking at each other, and that's kind of dangerous territory. Uh, don't be looking at other people. It's about you. Um, <clears throat> when, when I had uh, COVID in November of 2020, wow, it's already back then, uh, I lost all my taste and smell like a lot of other people. And, uh, but mine, when it came back, it was distorted. And so it's still distorted to this day. So all meat tastes rotten and eggs and beans and... And coffee, even the smell of coffee, just makes me ill because it's just so gross. And uh, I used to drink loads of coffee, and now I haven't had any coffee for well over a year. And I am a tea man now. <laughs> and uh, it just—it's just not the same, people. I'm telling you. Um, but uh, if you see me in the morning and I haven't gotten my tea yet that I may be a bit brisk with you. Um, but, you know, we all slip into this, this territory where we can be kind of mean to each other. And uh, it, here, here's the thing that we're going to look at in this first message. We're going to go back to the Old Testament to one of the most famous characters who's ever lived, uh, a guy named David, which I think most people in here would have heard of. Uh, before he became famous, he kept his father's sheep. And he also had mad harp skills, uh, for which he was chosen to play live music in the king's palace whenever the king was in a foul mood. All right, now, let's just do a survey here. How many of you, if you're ever in a foul mood, do you listen to your favorite music and it helps you? You like to listen to some music, okay? Get, get your groove going. Yeah, so this is how King Saul was. When King Saul had this evil spirit come on him and this horrible attitude, the harp just really helped him. And and early on, there were signs that King Saul was a mean person who needed soothing. Uh, But back to David, you may remember what made him famous. As a young man, he went down with his sling and five stones to fight a giant named Goliath. And the, the reason, the motive is so beautiful in 1 Samuel 17, it says that the whole earth would know that his God has mighty power. That's why he went down there. Yeah, that's, that's a great motive, by the way. Yeah, after that victory, David became a household name in Israel. All the newspapers had him in their headlines. Uh, quite a few of the top 40 songs had something to do with David, including a little hip-hop ditty called Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, right? Well, this song did not sit well with King Saul. He was angry and jealous and really angry because he was the king and he was in charge and he didn't get no respect. And the next day, David, according to his regular schedule, was once again playing his harp in the palace. And King Saul is sitting there, and he's still angry, and he's thinking about the song he heard him singing out on the street. And he starts looking at David, and he starts giving him this weird, mean, ugly eye. Has anybody ever given you an ugly eye? Right? They just kind of look at you like really weird. You know what's really weird? It's when people give you the ugly eye when you're preaching. It's the weirdest thing because, like, you can't stop what you're doing and talk to him, but look at you like, you know, and sometimes you wonder are they giving me the ugly eye or are they just, you know, having some eye problems? Um, but Saul started giving David the ugly eye and he's sitting there on the throne with a javelin in his hand. And uh, David's playing the harp and the king all of a sudden just ups and chucks the javelin at David. And David, of course, ducked out of the way. Apparently, Then David came back in the room to play some more, right? He thought that maybe Saul had thrown the spear, like, preparing for the annual Jewish javelin competition or something. Like, how did he not know? Was it him? Uh, It's kind of like they said, if the mule kicks you once, right, it's the mule's fault. If the mule kicks you twice, whose fault is it? It's your fault, right? So Uh, he sits back down, he starts playing the harp again, and uh, then Saul throws the javelin at him again. David started to think that maybe it's on purpose this time. And uh, so let's talk first this morning about escaping javelins. Escaping javelins. When you're dealing with mean people, how do you escape javelins? Uh, 1 Samuel 18 says at this point that Saul was afraid of David. Now, you kind of think it'd be the other way around, right? Here's a guy throwing javelins at you. But Saul was afraid of David because it says the Lord was with David. How do we know the Lord was with him? Because he behaved himself wisely in all his ways. What does that mean? Well, for starters, he didn't throw the javelin back right? He didn't stoop to the level of spear throwing. Now, let's consider this. When a spear is thrown at you, how do you respond? Now, most people throw the spear right back, don't they? He threw it at me first. She was hateful to me first. And in doing this, we inadvertently define right and wrong based upon what other people have done to us Instead of on morality, that's not how morality is measured. There's a big danger in returning the spears that have been lobbed at you. Here's what the big danger is. You quickly become a competent spear thrower yourself, right? You start getting pretty good at throwing the spears. And it doesn't really matter what order in which the spears were thrown. It just matters that you've become a spear thrower, And David determined not to respond when javelins were thrown his way because he honored God's authority structure for his life. If you're going to follow the words of Jesus and follow the example of David, you're going to have to learn to be a javelin escaper. I don't even know if that's a word, but we made it up, right? Yeah, a javelin escaper, not a javelin thrower. Now, let's fast forward a little on David's story. It's been two years since the javelin was thrown at him twice. Saul uh, has been openly chasing him all over the countryside, trying to kill him. And he's got actually an army of men chasing him uh, all over. And David's entire thought process for the future has been put on hold. He's just trying to survive one more day. And uh, really, there's no way to explain what it's like trying to just survive one more day unless you've ever lived in a condition or situation where you're trying to survive one more day. It's just hard to explain. In the first world, I don't even really know how to explain it except to take you to the third world and let you see how people live. They literally are living day to day, literally trying to survive. They don't know where they're going to find food Uh, Right now in Ukraine, people don't know where they're going to find shelter, food. A million people have escaped the country. There's still 41 million people in the country. And they don't know where they're going to get anything. They're just trying to make it through one more day. That's how David was at this point in his life. He's just trying to survive. And if that weren't enough of a burden, as he's hiding in the cave of Adullam, a group of men whose own lives were at the lowest of lows came to David so he could be their leader. 400 of them showed up. Some were in debt, some were distressed, some were discontented. Now look, if you ever have played hide-and-seek, how many of you know that when you're alone, you can find some killer hiding spots, right, when you're all by yourself? When you hide with another person, the chances of staying hidden go down significantly, especially if the person you're hiding with is named Titus my four-year-old. Because he will literally, when somebody comes in the room, they we go, "We're not in here." <laughs> like, really? What gave you the first clue? We're not here. Look, when you hide with 400 other people, are you kidding me? You can't even play hide and seek anymore. When you have to drag 400 other people to your hiding spot with you. So let's talk about the second part of the message, experiencing caves. Experiencing caves. As a teenager, probably 16, 17 years old, the prophet Samuel had come to David's house one day to anoint a new king, even though there already was a king. And David's oldest brother went into the room, and he was like six foot two, you know, tall, dark, and handsome, like totally the anti-me, right? Um, I'm just not in that category, with the, especially with the height part. Um, and uh, the, this prophet saw the guy and he said, that, there he is. He saw Eric Fallon right back there, the big strapping cowboy. He said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And uh, God whispered to the prophet, it's not him. Don't look at his countenance or the height of his stature. Uh, I've looked at his heart already. He's not the guy. I'm not saying that for Eric. Just, just kind of pick on him for fun. And then the next kid came in. Uh, maybe it's this guy. Then the next guy, seven sons of Jesse passed before Samuel. And God said no to all of them. And Samuel looked at Jesse and said, is this all your sons? Like, what, did I, what am I missing here? Yeah, oh, we got one more, but he's out with the sheep. We don't bring him in very often because he kind of stinks, right? Like, we kind of let him stay out with the sheep and we take food to him. And well, bring him in. I, I can't leave till we see him. David came in. His cheeks are all red. Uh, he comes in smelling like sheep. And, and God says to Samuel, this is the guy. Anoint him. And so David was anointed king as a teenager. And he's just been waiting around for God to advance him to the throne. And things haven't been, been really leaning toward David becoming king. In fact, they've been leaning the other way. Think of this change of mindset he's going through. All his hopes and dreams are fixed on the palace. And yet here he is spending his time in these dark, damp caves with 400 men who probably weren't wearing any Old Spice, if you know what I'm saying, right? Have you ever been in a locker room? (laughs) Just multiply that significantly. Significantly. Later, 200 more guys showed up. So now there's 600 of them. And and just thinking that when you're on the run from your enemy, it might eventually affect your attitude. In fact, you may start to blame all of your problems in life on your enemy. It's easy to do, right? If he didn't work here, this would be a great company, right? Right? If she didn't go to school here, this would be a great school. And my marriage is a train wreck because of my spouse. My life's a mess because of him. Everything's bad for me because of what she did. And David could have easily gone there in his mind. Uh, he had a lot of time in those dark, damp caves to think and to write and to pray. And there's a lesson we get from David's experience in the cave. Remember this, God is fully aware of both your enemy and your situation. And if you blame all your problems on a person, you are giving that person way too much credit. I know people who are bitter at somebody 20 or 25 years after something happened. And you know what they inadvertently are doing? They're allowing somebody who hurt them 25 years before to still control their life in the present day. That doesn't make any sense. Why would you allow somebody you don't like to control your life? Why especially would you allow somebody you don't like to perpetually control your life? And, and when you talk about bitterness, it will eat the inside of you. It'll destroy you. And you blame these problems on a person, you're giving that person too much credit because God is the one who's shaping you. God is the one who's testing you. God is the one who has a plan for you and his plan is already good and you know it's good. And you know God's the one who allowed David to have all this happen, right? You think Why in the world would Saul keep chasing David? Well, because God allowed him to. And what was God trying to do to David in his life during these horrible years? Well, if you're looking back and you're kind of reading this, it seems like God was trying to get all of the Saul out of David before he became king because God didn't want another mean person on the throne. And so God's trying to shape David ahead of time. In 1 Samuel 24, Saul's chasing David with 3,000 men. And as Saul goes into one of the caves to, to take a rest, and it just so happens that David and his crew were in that exact same cave, in the sides of the cave hiding out. And at David's men spotted Saul, and they whispered to David, Hey, i got to put the mic in the whisper. Hey, here's your chance kill him. God, let you kill him right now. And David, look at, what? Kill him? Yeah, they want you to take him out. Well, David crept over and they thought, surely he's going to kill him. He goes over and he takes his knife out and he cuts off a little piece of Saul's robe. He didn't kill him. He didn't stab him. He cut off a little piece of his robe And even that made him feel guilty, because God was shaping David's heart through his enemy. And God might be shaping your heart through your enemy, through your opposition, through your trial. After a while, Saul got up and went out of the cave, and David followed him out, called to him, and he even bowed to the king. They had a conversation. Yeah, actually, our small groups are covering that exact chapter in their lesson for today. But, but God allowed David to have a Saul in his life so that David wouldn't be a Saul. Now, let's fast forward again, right? Can you do this? Can we do it all together? It has been 35 years. That's a long time. 35 years. Is anybody in here younger than 35 years old anybody yeah lots of people in here are younger than 35 years so it's going to be hard for you to relate to this right you know that 35 years ago now this is this is crazy staggering was 1987 is that crazy that's crazy right i was in high school that's crazy 35 years ago it's been 35 years. Saul has been dead for a really long time. David, just as God has promised, has been king. And suddenly, there's this threat to the kingdom. And it comes from this entitled young man named Absalom, who's actually David's own son. Absalom starts having horses and chariots that run before him in the city, and 50 men to announce his entry, right? Can you imagine this? You're in this city. It's not really that big of a city, and 50 guys come running down the road. Absalom's coming. Absalom's coming. Absalom's coming. And everybody's, like, supposed to stop what they're doing, kneel down, the prince is coming. Not prince, the prince, right? That'd be weird, too. Um, But Absalom's coming. And and he's out there glad-handing the people, finding out where they're from, asking them what their needs are. He's this polished young politician. And he says, oh, that I were made a judge in the land. I would fix all your problems. I've got all the answers. I'd let you have more freedom. But behind the scenes, he's making his list of rules that he would start with. Right? That's how all dictators sound. Do you know my grandmother used to hear... In the 1930s in Holland, she used to hear Hitler on the radio. Uh, The radio waves would come across the German border into Holland, and their whole family would sit around. And you know what she told me? He was the greatest orator I ever heard. He could make you want to do whatever he said. He was an incredible orator. Uh, But he had a horrible heart, and he had a horrible plan. And he was an incredibly wicked man. Well, Absalom was kind of this way. Behind the scenes, he's hiring people to lead a conspiracy against the king. And David can see this rebellion coming like a train wreck in slow motion. But he never lifted a hand to stop him. And when the messenger comes to tell him, the hearts of the people have turned to Absalom. He doesn't call a meeting. He doesn't grab a sword. In fact, he tells his entire cabinet and his generals, we're leaving town. And then David, the king, the great warrior, the great king, walks out of Jerusalem barefoot with his head covered, weeping. Let's talk about encountering loss. It's the third part, encountering loss. And and this is a question of control. Who really has control of your life? if you feel like you have control, then loss is going to lead you to blame and retaliation and misery. But if you recognize that God has control, you'll be able to trust in his goodness even when the circumstances aren't good. And you won't play the blame game. You won't seek retaliation you won't be focused on your earthly enemy. You'll be focused on your heavenly Father. And remember what Joab said, or Job said, sorry, Job, when his life was turned upside down in one day. This is the beginning of Job, chapter 1 and 2. He said this, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's how David responded to Absalom's rebellion. And I'm sure it wasn't easy. But his early years of dealing with a mean king helped protect him from being a mean king. It all centered on one question. Is it God's kingdom or your kingdom? Is it God's kingdom or your kingdom? I remember many years ago, uh, I had only been at Centennial for probably two or three years, and, and we had these young staff members that uh, had, had been here for maybe six months or so, and, and they came into my office one day with this list of grievances, and uh, it was like the 95 thesis that Martin Luther mailed on the door, right, and, uh, you know, I surely some of them were probably true, and and uh, because, you know, we're human, and we make mistakes, and we have, have problems. But they had all these reasons why this is just a horrible place, and, and we don't want to be here, and it's, it's bad. And uh, I read the list, and, and they told me all about it. <clears throat> and uh, I started to talk. And before I started to talk, God impressed on my heart. You have been a person with a list of grievances before don't be an idiot. Yeah, that's kind of what God whispered to my heart. Don't be an idiot. Has God ever told you don't be an idiot, right, in so many words? And so I said this to him. I said, you know, I've been in your situation before, and when I went in to talk to the pastor about it, he was really mean to me. He yelled at me. He basically threw me out. Off the property. Bye bye. See you later. You're gone. We don't need you anymore. And I said, because of that experience, I'm going to tell you this I love you. God has a plan for you. We don't need to talk about this whole list. You guys want to go? Go ahead. I have no idea where that came from. It wasn't in my human heart to do it, right? Normally, when people tell me they don't like stuff, it makes me not feel so good, right? It makes me feel like maybe it's my fault and I need to fix it or whatever. You know, you know why God allowed me to say that that day? Because I had already been there. I'd been on the wrong side of it. And this is where David was. David had to choose, is this God's kingdom or my kingdom? Now, here's the thing, and I think we put this in your notes. This is so crucial. It's so important. If you choose door number one, that it's God's kingdom, you may lose everything. You may walk out of town barefoot without any possessions or provisions, fully relying on God to sustain you. However, if you choose door number two, this is my kingdom, you will become a soul trying to control all the outcomes trying to manipulate the process, thinking that you have the power to change God's will through your human actions. David chose door number one. You know what he found out? God still wanted him to be king. Now, what does this have to do with enemies? Everything. The only possible way you can love your enemy is to believe that God is in control of your life. Right? Right? If you think your enemy's in control of your life, you're in a bad place. If you think you're in control of your life, you're in a bad place. But if you believe that God is in control of your life, you can recognize that Jesus wants you to love your enemy, even when you don't understand, even when you don't feel like it, even when the circumstance calls out for a different response. At a loss, will either push you toward clutching control or it will lead you straight into the arms of Jesus. I love what Jesus said for those who are facing enemies and loss and negative circumstances and wars they didn't ask for and pain they didn't plan and abuse they didn't invite. This is in Matthew 11. He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not just physical rest, soul rest. How could David feel secure in God during the middle of a coup d'etat? Well, it goes back to one of the most difficult days in David's life. It was before he ever became king. He and his men were returning back to their village, a place called Ziklag, in Philistine territory. And as they got closer, they saw Smoke. Lots of smoke. Their entire village had been burned to the ground. Their wives and children had been kidnapped. His men were out of their minds with grief and anger, so much so that they're talking about stoning David to death just because he's in charge during these circumstances. And 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, has this sentence that jumps off the page. This is so big. It says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. David encouraged himself in the Lord. So now he's at this time. And they're saying, David, Absalom's trying to take the kingdom. What shall we do? David said, well, let's trust God. But shouldn't we try to stop him? We have to do something. No, that's God's job. He's in charge, not me. Have you ever been with somebody who just believed in God during difficult circumstances? It's weird. Right? You're around somebody and everybody else is running like a chicken with their head cut off. We gotta do something, we gotta do something. to just let it stand in there. I, the first pastor I ever worked for was just like the. You'd run into his office and say, Pastor, Pastor, we got an emergency, we got an emergency. And he just kind of looked at you. Well, you know, there aren't really any emergencies, he said. Like, this is an emergency. Get up. Let's move. And, uh, and he just kind of walked through the building. And he kind of, this is a dire emergency. There aren't any emergencies. You know what his whole thing was? God's in charge. God's in charge. And uh, if we could get that into our heads, we can have the right mindset. During this storm. Now let's talk about this last part as we finish. um, Embracing adversaries. Embracing adversaries. Absalom's army was ready to attack. They needed to get rid of those who were loyal to David. They especially needed to get rid of David. And so David called in his generals to organize a defense. And one third of the men he would go out with General. Joab, one-third would go with General Abishai, one-third would go with General Ittai. After the meeting, David spoke to all the soldiers and all the people who were gathering. This is in 2 Samuel 18. And he said, deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. David loved his enemy. And later, when Absalom was killed in the battle, David was overcome with grief. And he cried out, O Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. Only the heart of Jesus will allow you to express love for those who have hurt you, love for your enemies. In our text passage, Jesus said that the Father in heaven makes his son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And this perspective helps us to understand how to love our enemies. Because in reality, there are many times when we aren't sure who's just and who's unjust. We can't see the heart motives of anyone else. We even get tricked by our own heart motives. And when we remember how God's rain falls on the just and the unjust, We can show his goodness to those that we feel in the moment deserve kindness. And we can also show his goodness to those who in the moment we feel don't deserve kindness. If you don't get anything else from the whole message, get this next sentence. We do not love based upon the worthiness of our enemies. We love based upon the worthiness of our God. Right? That's why we love. How could David show honor to Saul even when he's ducking javelins? How could David offer authentic love to Absalom when he's trying to steal the kingdom? Because David trusted God to be the judge of who was just and unjust. David had experienced brokenness. He had learned losing even better than he learned winning. If you can still trust God during the losing, God will use you because God works through brokenness. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the mighty, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And David showed submission, not authority. That was his greatness. That's why God used him. David could have easily had that first javelin thrown at him and jumped up in anger. What is that all about? Don't you know who I am? I killed Goliath. Here, you can have your javelin back. Now, why did David never become power hungry? Why didn't he become a javelin thrower? The answer is easy. He never threw that first javelin back. That's what our faith challenge is all about. It is better that the enemy kills us than that we learn his ways. It's better the enemy kills us than that we learn his ways. If you become what you judge in other people, then you lose all moral authority. You you can't really criticize spear throwers when you throw spears with the best of them, right? You can't really criticize entitled rebels When you're an entitled rebel, you won't be able to reach people for Christ if you're fighting against them all the time. If you want to know how to treat mean people, this is where it starts. Love them. Don't imitate them. Love them. Let me pray with you. God, thank you for this first message in our series. And as we go further with these thoughts from beautiful sermon that Jesus gave. I pray that you would help us to see how to treat people who don't like us, who hurt us, who abuse us, who don't like our God, who persecute us. Help us to see how treating them with the heart of Jesus may reach them with your truth. I pray that you'd guide us now through this week Bless us in a special way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.